It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of the murder of two girls as well as sexual abuse. There are certainly a lot of people on YouTube who cover the Delphi murders. One of the YouTubers who really stands out to us is Tom Webster. We really enjoy and appreciate his methodical and detail-oriented approach to discussion of this case. We were fortunate enough to get to sit down with Tom recently and talk about the case, as well as his interest in crime in general. He was also able to ask us a few questions. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet 
gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're The Murder Sheet, and this is... The Delphi Murders, a conversation with Tom Webster. What's your background and how did you get uh, interested in this case? Well, I'm really not into true crime. Like I said at the beginning of my first Delphi, my research video, I mean, I used to watch Murder, She Wrote a, a few episodes. But I mean, I've never like been into true crime. So I've been a huge Mariah Carey fan for a long time. And um, the reason I started my YouTube channel is because I had a bunch of these old VHS tapes that were not on YouTube. And part of the thing is I... Um, there's some early performances before her first album came out that no fan had. So I did some sleuthing and I got like these two really rare Mariah Carey performances that non-Mariah fans wouldn't be impressed by, but like fans who had been wanting these performances were kind of impressed that I had gotten them. So that was like kind of my early sleuthing stuff. For this case, Um, February 1st, 2021, I don't know if you guys saw this, but in Pennsylvania, there was a snowstorm and there was a couple, a married couple, and they apparently put their snow on the guy across the street and he shot them both. And then he committed suicide right after when he realized, like, maybe I shouldn't have done that. So that was February 1st, 2021. And around February 10th, people online and we're still talking about it on these discussion boards. So I was wondering like, why are these people still talking about it? Because I don't like to see video or photos of people getting killed or anything. So I never actually clicked on the story. So people said, oh, nobody has been able to find in the media or online a picture of the murderer. So I kind of took that as my cue to let's see if I can find this guy or, or his picture. So his name was Jeffrey Spade. It was in Pennsylvania. So I Googled Jeffrey Spade obituary for some kind of clues. It said that he ran marathons. So I did another Google search for Jeff Spade marathon, and I found some results of races that he had been in. And when people do marathons, they get this white and black, it's called a bib number. So I started looking up for these pictures from these races and his bib number. And after like a few hours that night, I finally found some photos of this guy. So that was around February 10th, 2021. A few days later, February 14th, obviously, was the four-year anniversary of when the girls were found. So I had never clicked on any of these headlines about the Delphi murders. I saw the headlines four years ago, 
And I just never was interested in clicking in it. It just seemed horrible and I just didn't want to see it. So I did know that there was some kind of recording on video, but I never read an article. So around February 14th, 2021, I clicked some articles and some videos and I don't know, I just became obsessed with it. And I started taking notes. I started collecting files. And over the next two and a half months, by like late April, I had looked at a bunch of suspects. I tried to analyze the audio, the video, like trying to find all these different clothing. And I, at one point I was like, okay, I have to stop this. It's been like two and a half months. I'm not going to solve it. But I didn't feel right just like giving up and like deleting all my files. So since I had a YouTube channel, I said, okay, maybe I will create a video because I felt like there was not any Delphi video that had, had like everything that I had all in one video. So I spent like a week creating this video. I uploaded it in May, 2021. It took a while for it to take off, but eventually people started saying some pretty nice things about it. So that was in, like I said, around May and summer, 2021. And then people started asking me to do another case which I didn't really want to do, but I felt bad because I got like 1,500 subscribers just based off of my Delphi video. And at the beginning of my video, I said, I'm not becoming a true crime channel, but people, like I said, a lot of people subscribe. So somebody suggested Missy Beavers. So I watched a video about Missy Beavers at 11.30 a.m. And 12 hours later, I was still looking into Missy Beavers. So I was like, okay, I guess this is my next case. Over the next eight months, I spent 600 hours looking into her case. I did an almost five-hour video on her. I uploaded that on her anniversary, April 18th, uh, 2022. It was the six-year anniversary of her death. That's still unsolved. And people had been asking me during that time, can you do an update video on Delphi? So in the months since, I have looked into the clients and Ron Logan. I did upload that four-and-a-half-hour video, I guess, in early September, about a month ago. Yeah, we were really impressed with your methodical, detail-oriented uh, research method. It was really great work. Thank you. Yeah, and so I uploaded my files because people had also asked to share my files, which I think is helpful because I spent so much time and everybody else spends all this time trying to get associated with the case and find these files. And so I created a website where I uploaded them just to help people try and save them time it's definitely good and it, you know it's like your sh one thing we really like about your channel is that you show your work in that way um and and that's kind of gives people a sense of like here's exactly how we arrived at this process mm -hmm. of course you also uh, rather famously said you were mortified by your own channel can you yeah. elaborate on that like i said i initially uploaded my old mariah vhs tapes and then people started asking me for some original content and mariah at first, when she came out, she was kind of shy and she would just like not really be herself. And then like in the later 90s, she started like lounging on beds and chairs and couches. And so I decided to do some Mariah commentary videos lounging on my bed. And I mean, it's, it's embarrassing as heck, but it's just to be fun and stuff like that. So that was kind of my I'm mortified by my channel, although now it's even worse because I do these weekly making fun of the news segments where I lie in my bed making fun of news stories. So. But it's just, I try to have a sense of humor. My mom was voted class clown and class wit. So I'm just trying to make people laugh. Do you have plans to do any other cases? People keep asking me that. And they've been, I have a list of about 20 cases. But like I said, I spent almost a thousand hours probably on Delphi in the past 18 months, 600 hours plus on Missy Beavers. And like, I, I've totally ignored everything in my personal life for the past 18 months because of these two cases pretty much. So at this time, just the thought of spending hundreds of hours 
And the only reason I have looked into these is hoping to find one thing that nobody else has found and to solve it. It's not really interesting to me to do these like really long deep dives, although people appreciate them. It's just not interesting to me. I'm trying to somehow solve these and it's looking like it's not that easy. So the only reason I would want to look into another case really is if I could solve it. Having said that, I might have a few more true crime related videos in the future. I have actually... I saw the FBI top 10 fugitive list like a year and a half ago. And I had an idea on how to kind of capture these guys. And so I've done it over the past year or so. And I really thought I had maybe found Robert William Fisher, who's like one of the most elusive guys on the FBI top 10 list. And I mean, it turns out that I probably did not, but so many things matched up for him. I'm still not sure about it. I did submit it to the FBI. Honestly, if you saw my videos, you wouldn't be surprised. And I really feel like my tip to the FBI was like the most detailed ever. It had like six spreadsheets. It was like really, really detailed. And they said, we don't think this is worth um, spending our resources on at this time. So, I mean, I'm going to maybe share that video, like what my process is, because it's somewhat interesting, even if I did not find him. Although... Like six months ago, they finally took him off the list because they're like, okay, we're not going to find him. We want to make room for somebody else who we might be able to find. So I might share that video in the future. And also I do look for um, solving crimes for reward money. I have another like technique where if somebody's involved in a crime or a shooting where they have a car that's pretty unique, obviously they're going to maybe try to get rid of it. So last year, I saw this drive-by shooting with a really unique car in on the East Coast. And I looked on Craigslist. Within three minutes of reading about this story, I really believe I found the car. But I did not want to contact the Craigslist owner or the, who posted the ad because I didn't want to, like, tip them off that somebody's looking into them. So I called the police, and I've contacted them four times, and they have never replied because I said just contact Craigslist to find out who posted this and you'll solve it. It still remains unsolved. So it's like kind of frustrating, but I might do another video where I'm sharing some of those tips that I've tried to solve these crimes. But I know if I upload a video saying how to solve crimes and people say, well, what have you solved? And I say nothing. People are gonna be like, well, we're not following this. So I'm going to wait until I actually solve a crime. So I really want to at least solve one crime. So once I do that, hopefully I'll maybe do a video about it. Yeah. That sounds amazing. And yeah, that's frustrating that law enforcement didn't seem responsive at all. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I have contacted quite a few police departments and hardly anybody ever replies other than Midlothian where Missy Beavers was murdered. I was really appreciative. Somebody talked to me about that, but it's really hard to, I mean, obviously you guys might have a different experience with your background and stuff, but it's hard to get a reply. Even when I submit these tips and stuff, it's like, why aren't you replying to people? Now, half the time, like, you know, you might, we might, we, we, I feel we've been fortunate to connect with some law enforcement people in different cases that we cover, but you'd be surprised. Like you're, you reach out and you're like, Hey, we'd like to spotlight this cold case that's unsolved and nobody has talked about for years and nobody will talk to you. And it's sort of like, doesn't, does no one care? I mean, like, I mean, we're offering you a free basically platform to talk about and at least raise awareness. And I mean, it's not going to get solved no momentum's happening so you might as well do something a lot of law enforcement seem to have a general idea 
that anything on new media, whether it's YouTube or podcasts, is just crazy people. And like, yeah. like I mean, I, I we can all probably agree with uh, sometimes maybe people deserve that reputation, but there's a lot of people who are doing it totally responsibly or, you know, it's still a platform and it, it just... I think the skepticism and the willingness to dismiss it is is a problem because you know a lot of local media places are strapped and they're not necessarily going to be able to cover that or devote resources to trying to solve a case necessarily. So someone is willing to do that work. I, I think they should certainly be more the work you do is so detail oriented that certainly deserves their consideration. It's infuriating. It's not like you're just coming and oh hey I think it's this random guy because he looks funny. Hey, you know you're 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 showing your work obviously. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, in Delphi, I mean, I think at some point they said there were up to 80,000 tips and you, I mean, I'm sure you guys have read online. Some people said this crazy thing, like I tipped it in and it's like, how many crazy tips do they have to go through that's wasting their time? A ton, a ton is our understanding, unfortunately. And people don't seem to realize that like, you know, the wild conspiracy theory that you're pushing is just wasting everybody's time and is actually harmful because it basically forces the police to stop what they're doing and read something that's not important and not true so you know you don't want to discourage the public from tipping things that could be plausible but people who people don't seem to have a good judgment about where that line is about what's plausible versus what's just total unhinged I'm, speculation i'm curious you've spent more time thinking about this case and studying this case and taking a real detail oriented look at this case do you have a personal theory about what you think is most likely to have happened like I said, I'm I even though, I've, though I spent a lot of time, it's a lot less than a lot of people who have been looking at it for five and a half years. So I'm not acting like I'm an expert. But even though I've thought about it so much, I hardly have any answers, like any concrete answers. And so I'm not going to act like, oh, yeah, I know what happened, because honestly, I, I cannot figure it out. Yeah, it's it's we, our our stock answer, I feel sometimes is we don't know, you know, people will kind of say, well, you've uncovered this or that. So what are the conclusions you draw? And we try to kind of narrowly tailor our answers around that because, you know, we we can't just connect all the dots because we don't have that information and we are reluctant to make too much of a leap of jumping to conclusions or making assumptions that turn out to be incorrect. So we definitely feel that. <laughs> I guess on a personal level, how does it feel that the work you've done has resonated and you've got uh, an audience of people who really appreciate what you do? Like I said, I'm discouraged that I spent all this time trying to solve it and I feel like I'm, I failed. But if there's one thing I can add to this case, like I said, it's saving people time by either watching one of my, even though they're really long, I think it is helpful that I tried to include a lot of different angles and facts. And people said that they do appreciate that. And honestly, I've read a lot of nice comments about me and my video online. And I really appreciate that some people are finding it useful. So did you have any uh, questions for us? I think we breezed through most of our questions, although we'll probably think of some and pepper you with them, with them at random intervals. No, I did say that I wanted to um, start off by mentioning the Delphi donation funds where people can donate, right. because I don't think a lot of people know about that. So if I can take maybe like 90 seconds to just give an overview. overview. Yeah, take all the time Please you do, need. Yeah. All right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. I'll, I have a Word document up on the screen. So. So I had heard about the Memorial Park and I had been meaning to donate for a long time. And I finally just did last week for people who are nosy. I gave $200 to the Memorial Park. And there's also a reward or sorry, not a reward. 
there's a scholarship fund for each girl. So I gave $100 to Abby and $100 to Libby scholarship fund. And it's, it's a $10 minimum for people who are wondering. So if people want to donate, they can go to abbyandlibbymemorialpark.org. And at the top, it has a link to donate via PayPal. You do not need to have a PayPal account. You can just enter your credit card information. Also on Abby and Libby, Abby and Libby memorialpark.org at the top, it says more. And you can click how you can help. They have some t-shirts for sale. Lastly, um, the, communi- the Community Foundation of Carroll County is at cfcarroll.org. And at the top left, there's a menu where you ho- hover your mouse over giving, and you can scroll down and click give now. You enter the donation form information. About halfway down, it says gift information, and there's a field for county. And you have to scroll to cfcarroll-list fund name below and you have to type one of the following three funds below one is abigail williams scholarship fund or you can do liberty german scholarship fund or the third one is the l and a park foundation fund you just have to make sure you look because it says monthly annually or one-time donation so make sure you read each option you click submit and it'll show a page saying thank you for your donation and i appreciate anybody who also donates thank you I think that's a terrific reminder. I mean, these these girls were so beloved by their families, by the community, and there still is, you know, an opportunity to sort of honor their legacy by giving to these causes that make life better for people in the community where they were, you know, raised and where they lived. And I think that's a really, really nice gesture. Yeah, I did not know about the two scholarship funds, so that, that was something new that I found out. I don't think I knew about that either. I I confess I did not know. I knew about the park and I knew that was like a nice kind of beautiful legacy for the two girls. But the fact that it's also helping kids, you know, receive an education in the area is terrific. And yeah, we would encourage people to to donate. Yeah, it's nice. A lot of people now who are interested in the case just like go and visit the bridge, which is where these girls, you know, met their ends. And it's it's wonderful that there's now a place you can go to to celebrate their lives and how they live. So I'm really grateful for the existence of that part. Yeah, true. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. 
Go to row.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, so now for you guys, um, this is not an interrogation. I'm, I'm not going to do my best Detective Vito impression. <laughs> but you guys have received a lot of praise, but you have received some criticism online also. So I want to give you an opportunity to respond to some of these criticisms, if you don't mind. Yeah, please. So there's obviously two groups of people who are interested in Delphi. Some people want to know everything, and some people feel like certain information should not be released in case it might harm the case. And my initial reaction to you guys asking me to talk to you was a polite no, because I had said in my previous live chat that although I appreciate what you guys have released as somebody who wants to know pretty much everything, I just felt like, especially the Wabash search information, I know you guys did not know it was going to last five weeks, but I felt like it was kind of like putting the police in the spotlight. So do you want to talk about how you decide what information to release? Yeah, certainly. And it's it's a great question. And and we we appreciated you being so frank and and we're certainly we're not above criticism. <laughs> you know, we're 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 imperfect people trying to do our best, but I think there's a lot of areas in this case around coverage where a lot of reasonable people can probably disagree. Um I would say that our process sort of with Delphi in particular, given that it's unsolved and ongoing and and subject to a really active investigation, it involves, uh, I would say, kind of like identifying stakeholders, whether that's people that we plan to name in the episodes or people, uh, you know, law enforcement, uh, family members, um, various people, as I'm sure you can imagine, being involved. And just kind of before we publish anything, you know, running information by various stakeholders and sort of leaving and being open-minded and and giving time to maybe assess whether or not certain things could be actively harmful to the investigation. And, um, you know, it's not a matter of just saying, uh, I think it's just a matter of have open lines of communication. We don't want to assume something is, is fine and then it comes back and that was devastating and it could hurt the investigation. We also don't, as journalists, we want to inform the public. So we don't want to just assume we can't ask them anything. We're just, you know, we're just going to bury this because we assume it's sensitive. So we try to assume nothing at this point, talk to people, get an assessment um, and kind of look at the the risks and what could happen uh, as part of the reporting process, I guess. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes people, um, I think, uh, maybe assume a, a little bit like that the case is is very 
fragile and and very weak and that like a gust of wind could sort of knock it down and and that's understandable given that it's unsolved and it's five years and so obviously the optimal outcome would have been that it's solved by now so we can assume that you know and we're always trying to dig like what what's happening exactly but we just try not to assume that we would encourage people not to assume without having sources in law enforcement that stuff we're releasing is is necessarily harmful to the case because that's not the feedback we've received uh in those conversations i guess in fact the feedback we've received is that the information we released has actually been helpful because it gets more publicity on the case and uh, we specifically were told, for instance, that releasing the Kagan Klein uh, interrogation transcript was helpful and it helped generate a lot of people calling in with useful tips. And I'll add this, like we we, we have counterexamples, information that we've taken to people I identified as stakeholders or people who would know. And we're told pretty explicitly, like, if this gets out, X could happen. And those were conversations where we sort of talked about it between the two of us and determine that, well, that actually seems like a pretty reasonable concern. And if X did happen, people would be rightfully pretty upset with us. And so, and then we did not run with said information and basically, you know, we're open to running within the future if, if things change, if factors change, but we're, we're not, people I think have the assessment of us because we've released a lot of news that like we run with everything mm. and that could not be further from the truth there's a lot we've um you know not run with not to hide things from the public just because there were those factors that we determined that yes this is too risky or this would be a problem um and it really mostly has to do with like negative impact to the investigation and the investigators doing their jobs i would say that tends to be the biggest factor uh, in 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 terms of in, how in terms of the uh, Wabash River search i'll note that that was going on in public pretty openly and it was a topic of conversation among a lot of people in peru so that wasn't uh it was an open secret locally where people were seeing it unfold before their eyes and sort of openly wondering hey where's the media like this is happening um so we felt that point based on discussions but also the fact that it was unfolding in public and it had been going on for some time at that point we sort of felt that um you know this is this is going to break sooner or later. And, uh, you know, I, I think based on the conversations, we did not hear anything that was a, a red flag or, you know, if you do this, there will be X consequences, but we're always open to hearing those because we, we certainly, this case is very important to us and people have worked very hard on it, both in the media and in law enforcement. And it, um, you know, we would not want to do something to deprive the families in this case of the justice they deserve. So you say that you did run it by law enforcement, but isn't there like four different agencies working on this? Delphi, Carroll County, Indiana State Police, and the FBI. So if somebody that you're dealing with is in one of those agencies, how do you know one of those other agencies would be okay with it? Um, I would answer that by saying those agencies have all been involved at different points in different capacities, but I don't think, I don't view the case as necessarily being a, uh, evenly split at the current moment by those uh is that fair to say that's fair yeah say. um you know i i don't uh i don't really get the sense for example that you know the delphi police are leading the charge on anything 
And, you know, that's understandable. That's not necessarily don't, they don't necessarily have the resources for that. But um, if we're being told pretty, you know, like we, we, we feel comfortable, not necessarily, uh, you know, it, some community, some, I would say agencies are more communicative than others. And then in some cases we have sources who are placed in a position, uh, you know, to know things that are not permitted to, to speak to us and will never, you know, confirm or deny anything around them or what entities that they are involved with. But that's another good way of understanding. Having multiple sources, I think, is a good way to to kind of understand things if they'll affect uh, certain things. But we never assume either way, I guess, is a good way to, to say it. Would you say Carroll County is leading this investigation or Indiana State Police? Good question. Uh, most of the work I've seen, I would say, seems to be being done by the Indiana State Police. Currently. Uh, that doesn't mean that there isn't, you know, significant contributions going on from Carroll County. And, you know, if you work for Carroll County and you have some thoughts, definitely send us an email. We'd be interested in that. Not from your work email. Um, <laughs> from your That's important. From your private email. But um, I, so we're open to, to certainly learning more about that. But uh, yeah, they, you know, and it, again, it's understandable. It's a pretty... Um, before this happened and before the Flora fire happened, I think Carroll County could be aptly described as somewhat sleepy, does not have a huge sheriff's department at all. And so they didn't have the resources, at least at that time, to conduct an investigation like this. Uh, we've heard stories about leads being followed even in other countries in terms of computer programs and stuff. And uh, a small town or a small county in Indiana just doesn't have the resources to conduct an investigation of that magnitude. So is there any information that you guys regret releasing? I wouldn't say so. Um, I think what would prompt us to regret something is is hearing that, yes, this consequence happened. And we've never gotten any feedback that would indicate anything around that. Um I think sometimes we wish we had framed things more clearly. Mm, yeah. I think when we released the Ron Logan search warrant, we primarily saw that as a historical document. It was a snapshot of where the investigation stood a month in. And it also had some details about the crime scene yeah. that were of interest. And uh, perhaps we didn't make that as clear I think we repeatedly said that in the episode, in fairness, but I don't think we necessarily controlled um, the narrative enough once it hit the the sort of media outside of us, where it suddenly became like, let's... Ron Logan is, is Ron guilty. Logan is Here's guilty. the proof. Yeah, and, and I think that was something where we really saw firsthand how a narrative can emerge. And, you know, it's not as if... I think we viewed it as, again, we viewed it in an overly academic sense of like, what does this tell us about the case in March of 2017? And other people basically said, you know, case closed. And and I think that that is something that we could have done a better job when speaking to other outlets, being just very clear about our own opinions. We at that point were very much in the mode of like, our opinions don't matter. All that matters is the facts that we unearth. And I think we learned from that, that, you know, Sometimes it does make sense to kind of take a bit of a stand if you're saying, well, listen, it's a very interesting document, but it only has one side of the story. There's nothing going to, 
probable cause affidavits do not exist so that you can be like both sides. It's all about this guy's guilty. And it's also five years old. Um, and I, I think we, we were a bit too, uh, we, we did not, we, that, that narrative sort of ran away and then it died down as things do in Delphi. It's like, you see these things blow up and then nothing. And it was definitely a lesson for us, I would say. Do you guys feel pressure that now that you're known for releasing stuff, do you feel pressure like, oh, we have to at least come up with some new interesting stuff to keep people turn, tuning in? Because people aren't, well, maybe a few people will tune in for Tom Webster, but I don't know about that. <laughs> you're a big draw. And well, uh, I would say, uh, no, we try to really get out of that head headspace in terms of we don't see the case as just like something where we're going to get a bunch of clicks now because, you know, that that's gruesome in our opinion that's a gruesome way to think about the murder of two girls it's one of those things we kind of we kind of just let things come in and and if we have ideas about like hey we can shake these trees and see what falls out then we'll do that um but oftentimes we waste a lot of time on rabbit holes that lead nowhere and that you know so that eats up a lot of our time so you know but in all those cases we don't publish anything because it's like it, it would be irresponsible or it's incomplete. We weren't able to quite verify everything. We don't waste anyone's time. We don't want to waste anyone's time. And and we also don't want to, we, we feel at this point that, you know, if we have interesting analysis, it's sort of us talking, we'll release that. Um, and if we have new information, we'll release that. But if we don't have anything, it's like. And one thing that's always kind of interesting to us is that people seem to think we can get any documents yeah. we want and they're say, I don't understand why they're not releasing the bicycle road uh, affidavit. Or, or, or it's the... like a it's like a grocery store run. They'll be like, "Can you get the bicycle road affidavit for us?" It's like, "Yeah, we'll just pop over to Kroger." What I mean, what like leak it to us if you want. <laughs> like, we can't just you know that that's not how any of this works. Um, it's really hard to get documents. Uh, Kevin got the initial ones through a fluke, and then we can't talk about the other one, uh, the Logan one. But I would say it's it's one of those things where um, people. It's also not, you know, with sources, people sort of think you can just ring people up and ask them all sorts of specific questions on things. And oftentimes that's not how a source relationship works at all. Uh, you know, and and then, you know, verifying things, you might hear something that's really interesting and seems to fit a bunch of stuff. But if nobody else will confirm it or says anything, you know, you got to kind of just sit on it until you can get something else. So it's a very slow process generally. And I think, you know, we we de we never want to rush things. We never want to just put out something on Delphi just to put it out and get you know get people all riled up. That's not how we ever want to operate. And yeah, you mentioned rabbit holes. Somebody under my first Delphi video said something like, "Dude, you fall down a lot of rabbit holes." So at the beginning of my Missy Beavers video, I mentioned that and I said, "Ain't no shame in my rabbit hole game," because <laughs> I feel like especially with these cold cases, it might take some random person going down some random rabbit hole to maybe come up with a good clue. Because in my first video, people, some people agree with me on this, some people disagreed. I said that when I was looking at this video of this guy walking across the bridge repeatedly, I see possible rips in his jeans. Some people said no, some people said yes. But I really felt like if somebody could find a picture of a guy with these same rips in his jeans the same like shirt or sorry the same jacket from like a few years prior like on facebook maybe in the background that could identify this person that has been unidentifiable for five years so 
Ain't no shame in anybody's rabbit hole game. Yeah, I would say as long as people are doing it responsibly and not, like, accusing random people of, like, murder, I think that's fine. And that's, like, a good discussion for people to have online and sort of maybe, like, hey, maybe it's this possibility or this. Or maybe this fits, you know, where he could work or what kind of person would be out on a on a Monday afternoon. And, like, I, I think where we are more, you know, we're more interested in, I think, following the investigation and following like where where has it been where is it going what's happening now um but i think some level of speculation is going to be necessary for any sort of unsolved case because there's going to be blanks that you need to fill in essentially in order to talk about it i would say but we've certainly wasted a lot of time on a lot of rabbit holes both in this case and in many cases Burger Chef. we once went to texas to find somebody and we did not. On a whim. On a whim. Okay, um, so in the Burger Chef case, there is uh, a person who's been generally considered a suspect. And the police haven't talked to him for a long time. We're not even 100% sure where he was. He has a Facebook profile. And the cover photo of his Facebook profile, I'll say in his Facebook profile, he indicates he lives in the area of Houston. And the cover photo is the picture of a wall of a restaurant. And it's taken in such a way that it made us think this is taken by an employee. This is like an employee's only area. And Anya and I spent a great deal of time looking at this wall and analyzing it. And finally... The slogan? We were looking up the slogan? There's all these signs and stuff on the wall. Finally we actually succeeded in figuring out which restaurant this was. Yeah. And we, he must be an employee. It's a random restaurant. Oh, it's not, okay, like a, okay, okay, not okay. a chain or anything like that. It was really hard. We're very clever. We're very <laughs> smart. So he must be an employee there. So we hop on a plane and we go down to Houston and we go to this restaurant. And first of all, we find the wall and it's in a general area where anybody can access it. <laughs> And no one's there has heard of him. <laughs> we're like, is suspect in today? And oh they're like, God. who? And we're like, oh my, we looked like such idiots. It was so embarrassing. Was it a one day trip or did you do anything fun? No. It was a one day trip. No, we did nothing. We drove back and forth across Houston at different addresses that all were bus. And it was a disaster. And we went home demoralized <laughs> and defeated by uh by jumping to conclusions about the way the picture looked we were like there's all these cups stacked it has to be back of the room back of the restaurant this can't be and then you walk in and it's boom it's right there it was so bad i just wanted to point out that kagan has been talking to multiple people and talking about the case so it's not like you guys just have this police interview and you're the only ones releasing it kagan is talking details about the case and other people are also releasing it like i knew about the red jeep like a few days before you guys released it so it's not like you guys i just want to point out you're not the only ones who have this information and are releasing it yes sometimes we take a little bit longer we try to like verify it or make sure that you know this is a story he told police um as opposed to like just something we're seeing in screenshots that may or may not be spreading around so we try to only release it if we're like yes we feel very solidly and that's the one we tried to place in context and that we're not saying this is what actually happened. All we're saying is that this is what a known liar told the police. Yes. We and maybe he told them something different an hour later. It's really important to contextualize a lot of this because you're dealing with people in general and specifically Keg and Klein 
who can be pretty untrustworthy when it comes down to it and just repeating, ah, yes, this is the solution, uh, that that's probably an irresponsible way of doing things just because maybe in most cases you'd have things start clicking at this point, but just we know how much this guy has a problem with the truth and we don't want to, you know, just be a platform for his lies. Yeah. Somebody posted on the internet that Kelsey, Libby's sister, did not approve of your content. So I searched her Twitter to see if she ever said that. And I saw her tweeted that she had a conversation with you guys. So I'm not going to ask what the content of that was, but I assume that she nor anybody in either family, Abby's or Libby's, has ever asked you to stop doing what you're doing. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, no, uh, definitely not. Uh, but yeah, she, they've not asked us to not do it. Uh, I would say, you know, it, we never want to speak for the families. Obviously, we do. We are in contact, but we do not want to be. You know, they're very intelligent, uh, thoughtful people, and they have their own platform that they use to speak on the case. So we don't. It's like, like some of this like online discourse. Like we never want to be in the position where we're like the family likes us. Like you know, like and like trying to trying to use them to like further our cause because that feels really sleazy. Uh, we do run stuff by them before publication just to give them a heads up. They've, they've asked for that. They've asked for that. And also it's it's understandable because this is their granddaughter. This is their sister, daughter. This is, you know, Libby. And in, 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 it's, it's their it's their kids. So obviously they want to be informed and um, we don't want to upset them in that sense of just kind of dropping things and then learning it through reporters asking them for comment essentially but they've never asked us to stop covering the case yeah we try to be very communicative with the families and and, and that's you know when, when when we're asked to be and so uh and that goes for other cases as well we try to kind of reach out and make those connections and so in this case uh people oftentimes i think in this case in particular attempt to use the families as like a like a, a way to cudgel others and i think that's lousy to be putting them in the middle it's not a game you know what i mean it's not like this podcaster versus this youtuber or whatnot you know they're real people navigating this and navigating this very unusual situation where um they lost their libby to like a very publicly documented crime that a lot of people are interested in and they're being bombarded on all sides so we just try to be respectful but i mean i think we we're happy with the relationship and that, you know, this communication. Kevin, some people have criticized you as a lawyer for using Indiana My Case to access, especially that one document that was uploaded by mistake. Would you care to answer, reply to that? Uh, basically, when something is in my case, uh, a person can just go into the courthouse and get it. So it's not like I was doing anything devious or underhanded. It was classified as a public document. It would have been accessible to anyone. And so uh, I've certainly, I've, I've, I've discussed this with uh, other attorneys and uh, the bar, and I've not heard any criticisms of it. Yeah. Again, in the Delphi case, you have a lot of people with, you know, the University of Reddit degrees in law and media and, and ethics. And, you know, it, it kind of, it begins after a while to feel a bit disingenuous, frankly. And as we've said, we're not, we're not above criticism and we certainly see areas where people can disagree and like there could be a communication or like, Hey, what, 
you know, is this too far? Is that too far? But when people were sort of acting that with some sort of legal breach of legal ethics, it was like, can you be a little more specific about if what exactly it's made, is the problem? If, if it's made available to the public and I, as a member of the public, access it. There's uh, no legal qualm. If yeah. he's an officer of the court, uh, it would have been improper. Leaking it, then that's different. yeah. If I was, you know, in this case as a as an attorney for someone, and there was something filed that was supposed to be kept confidential, and then I went and talked about it on a podcast, that clearly would have been improper. Yeah, that's right. Speaking of that, there's a rumor about a gag order. Do you guys want to talk about that? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was so. We were. I guess it was some sort of internet rumor that we had been gagged, um, and we have not. That's not true at all, and that's also not how anything works. Uh, we we actually looked because we were curious about this. Like, how often does that even happen, if at all? Because it sounded something like that's not how the media or law enforcement tend to work. And we the closest approximation we did find for it was something called prior restraint, and that's basically um, let's uh, give it a purely hypothetical. Uh, ex explanation. Let's say that an FBI undercover agent um, is the subject of some sort of like New York, you know, a, a part of some sort of New York Times article, and they're going to name this undercover officer. And the agency, or the, the you know, the, the FBI basically comes in and says to a judge, files an injunction and says, we do not want them to name this person. The rest of the article is fine. But if they name this person, like that's going to be a problem. So we want them to hold the story. And a judge will sometimes agree with law enforcement and say, you can't publish this with this person's name yet. And those cases are, I mean, exceedingly rare, exceedingly rare. And typically in a case like that, what will happen is the judge files something, you know, they, they put a stop to the publication. And then within a few days, it's dismissed because our legal system tends to very heavily favor the First Amendment, freedom of the press, freedom of speech. And um, such gag orders are considered, you know, pretty and a pretty extreme measure. There would never be anything like you could you would go to the New York Times and say, you know what, you guys can't write about the FBI anymore or you can't write about, you know, this case anymore. Like that's yeah, just they almost not... never happen. And when they do happen, they're very, very narrow and very, very specific and public and public. Uh, we actually found out about this rumor because uh, a reporter called to ask us about it. Yeah. So if something like this did happen, it would be a pretty big news story. It would be a big news story because it would be, wow, something big is happening and law enforcement is taking a very extreme move to deal with it. Um, and, and I don't think we'd want to live in a country where police could say, oh, this particular podcast or this particular newspaper is not allowed to report on this case anymore. Some people have wondered if we're going to get thrown in jail at points. People have like reached out like, I just want to make sure you're okay and you're not being arrested. It, that's just not how any of this works. We're not in a police state. And there's ways that police agencies can kind of, you know, like deal with things that do not resort to filing a legal motion. Um, you know, that that's, that's kind of... Uh, that's a very much a, a course of, of last resort. So, and frankly, if we ever do get gagged, I mean, people will be hearing about it. I mean, we won't be allowed to talk on whatever the information is, but like, it would be a big deal. And we would, we would probably want to talk about it to like flag that some yeah. real crisis of the first amendment is happening. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll, I'll, I'll add to that. There were some people saying, well, it wasn't a gag order. 
it was a cease and desist letter, which is a totally different thing, obviously. Murder Sheet never said they didn't get one of those, but we did not get any <laughs> legal papers whatsoever. No, nor a protective order filed against us. I mean, all of those, cease, anyone can send a cease and desist letter. Sometimes people send, frankly, frivolous ones to kind of threaten somebody to stop talking. And then other times they're sincere and they're sort of like, we will sue you if this keeps on going on. And so with us, we've never gotten anything. So, uh, you know, and it, it, it's kind of like if there's a case, there's a case. If there isn't, then it's just kind of like a, you know, a stern, you, you better stop it. And then protective orders. I, I don't know why anyone would file that. We're, we're pretty innocuous. We do our <laughs> diligence and reach out to people for comment, but we've we've never stalked anyone or if you know people tell us no comment we respect that and we we back off so there's a lot of people who really don't like us spend too much time thinking about us and <laughs> always want to believe the worst of us uh there was one youtuber who's been critical of us in the past and he made a comment on his youtube uh, community page well you know i have some disagreements with them but they have a pit bull and pit bulls are great and there were people who were criticizing him for saying we had a good dog. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, the, 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 some, some people, I think in this case in particular, you know, it's like a, a method for them to work out some of their personality problems, frankly, and like kind of obsess over something. And then they become obsessed with people involved, whether they're media or, or whatnot. And frankly, all we can say about that is like, we're sorry for you. And we'd rather you be obsessing and, and nutty about us than you know the family members in this case because they've gotten enough of that for years and like it's not it's not right what some of the things that they've been through and the accusations that they've had to deal with that were just you know nasty stuff and you know so our attitude is like whatever <laughs> we, we're not on most of the social media platforms anymore you know it's like we have to look something up obviously we'll we'll go in there but we're not we're not engaging with a lot of it because it's just it's just silly and i think most people see it as silly I think most of the community is actually really chill and they're just kind of like, let's get some information. But then some people take it to like a degree where it's like, let's become obsessed with this random couple from Indiana who must be doing something wild. Because I mean, like, <laughs> I, I don't even know. I d it's, it's insane. <laughs> okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.
The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, one final question for this section. On your recent episode about Kegan's visitors online and in person, you guys interviewed somebody who has been communicating with him via phone, chat, video, letters, and you guys received some criticism afterwards because people, I guess, found out that this woman has done some pretty, I guess, I did not know, I've heard of her, but I did not know about this stuff that she had done. So I really don't blame you guys if you did not know, but people kind of questioned your vetting process if you had known about I guess she criticized the families and the girls. Do you guys want to talk about that? Yeah, certainly. Uh, that's Kelly Brown. We interviewed her on a, a episode we did about people who were in communication with Kagan Klein and sending him money. Um, yeah, we didn't know most of that. As we said, we kind of avoid a lot of the social media stuff. Um, I would just say that, like, in this case, she was in communication with Kagan Klein. The reason we wanted to hear her side of it was because we were doing a report on people who were and she was one of uh there were five other people who were sort of in the mix in that and she was the only one who actually went and went on the record with us so we kind of if we're going to be talking about you or something you're doing we are going to reach out and try to say okay can you can you tell us why you were doing this especially something that was controversial with with this it was um People were really questioning why are people essentially having these sort of sexually charged conversations with a, an accused online predator who's sitting in jail and sending him money. We were even hearing from people in Peru uh, who were saying like, oh, well, he has a very, you know, a series of very wealthy girlfriends who are all funding his defense. So part of the reason we wanted to uncover this is because like that's a kind of horrible rumor and like yikes. Um, and so we kind of were like, well, who, who are these women? What is going on? Who are like, what are, what are they doing? What are their motivations? So we kind of approached it more as journalists than people who are trying to say, yes, we agree with everything these people do all the time and forever. And because they're on our show, they get a murder sheet stamp of approval for the rest of their lives. We tried to only include comments she made relative to her perspective on her visits with Kate and Klein. And then we also tried to make a point of saying, you know, ideally, we like to have at least two sources for anything reported as to what happened. Uh, but we weren't able to have two sources for the content of her conversations. We know she had the conversations. Yes. And so we tried to say this is just her own perspective. And we I mean, I would say just in general, like with this, with with our show, we don't see it as a platform in the sense that we're trying to you know, launch people's careers or, or use it in that way. We're more of, you know, what is the information you can give us? And if it was a, a some sort of like judgment on somebody's morality or overall doing good things, I, we, we, we also talked to Kagan Klein via text and, and ran that entire exchange uh, where he was basically, I mean, it was pretty much nothing. He was just trying to pump us for money, essentially. Um, but that's not a judgment call about oh we think he's wrongly accused or a good guy it's just you know he is involved kelly brown involved herself and i think the interview is more to get at the heart of like why would somebody do that as opposed to this is a good thing to do if that makes sense 
All right, so that's that section. I have another two sections. Are you guys okay? Keep keep going. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I have one section with more viewer comments or questions from my October sixth live, where you guys were nice enough to join, and then I have some of my own questions. Um, so these are some October sixth live chat questions that we did not get to. So you do not have to answer these if you obviously don't want to or whatever. Is it known where Tony and his phone were the afternoon of the murders? As far as we know, um, no. Or at least that is to say we don't know. No. Uh, we don't have any information on that, unfortunately. I wish we did. I wish we did. It's a great question. Why hasn't Kagan been charged with trafficking narcotics and possession of marijuana? Excellent question. But uh, we don't know. Um, we don't have any insight into what, what would be the strategic reasons around that. Uh, yeah. yeah. I guess they're going with the bigger CSAM charges. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would think maybe that's considered more important. Is Kevin, I'm curious like just in your you know, as an attorney, is there something that would make a prosecutor not want to like overload the charges or like stretch too much or is it is it just a matter of like it would be hard to prove some of that? It might be hard to prove and they have a very strong case against him on CSAM. So if he's going to be going away potentially for many, many years for that. It's like, why bother? If he Perhaps. admitted, if he admitted to the, the marijuana usage though, would that be, wouldn't that be just a slam dunk or is that an oversimplification? I think that's an oversimplification. Yeah. This one's kind of like a multi-parter. Will a Kagan C Sam slash Delphi plea deal only be announced after a Delphi killer is arrested? interesting um we don't know uh at all sorry we're so boring like we're just answering we don't know to any of this um that's one of those ones where i it, that speaks to police strategy and i i mean i think from the sense we get they they desperately do not want us to know any of that and i, I can't say that we have any insight into what the plan would be all we know we, we reported doug carter flew up in july on the helicopter to basically talk to the prosecutor and say, take it to trial. And we don't know exactly why he did that. We don't know whether that was posturing to like show that, you know, we're pretty serious on this or whether that was sincere, like you need to take this to trial. It's, that's important. Um, we know it's unusual for an Indiana State Police Superintendent to do that from what we've heard. And certainly there was no talk of a deal at the pretrial conference that no. was held last week. That sort of shot, you know, uh, down any expectations of a deal that was the one thing that we didn't we had a feeling going into it well we, we had some insight but we thought maybe this is going to be probably nothing and then it was but it, it was something in that we now know a trial seems pretty likely unless something happens in december but yeah that is to say we we don't know and we're sorry yeah this is just similar does a c sam slash delphi plea deal need to happen by Kagan's January 23rd CSAM trial, or will that date get pushed if law enforcement is still working on evidence related to Delphi? This is, I'm speculating here, maybe Kevin will correct me, but like, I would think that a certain point, but you know, by the trial, you know, the, the you know, the Miami County will have had to assemble resources and put this all together. Trials, you know, are not you know, it, 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 it's going to take resources. So I would imagine a, a judge would be pretty upset if at the very last minute, you know, that's somebody fair. pulled an old switcheroo and, oh, no, it's, it, I mean, I don't know. That's just me. If I if I were in that position, I think I would be pretty ticked off, but I, you might be better to answer yeah, that. That's, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I, I would think it would have to happen pretty soon to avoid 
that and, and remember, um, this is one thing we were talking about recently. Uh, the last pretrial conference is two days before Christmas Eve. So people are going to be off then and it's going to the Christmas, you know, people might take a week off perhaps. Uh, so there's logistical things that you would think that like, if we were going to see something, we'd see it, you know, before that, because otherwise if he, you know, gets cold feet on that day, it could be, you know, it could take a little while to get the wheels in motion. I don't know. That's all speculation. I want to like strongly label. That's just me talking. It's not me talking based on anything we've heard from a source, just kind of me rambling. <laughs> so take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> so if Kagan is sentenced to only the CSAM charges in January or early February, and there is no mention of a plea deal related to Delphi, does that mean there is no Delphi connection for Kagan or Tony? I would say not necessarily. Um, it would certainly mean that the prosecution in that case was not looking to make any sort of deal and was therefore not looking to connect his crimes around CSAM with the Delphi case. And there's a re legitimate reason for doing that because you don't necessarily want to prejudice the jury or bring a bunch of things that you can't prove in, in versus what you can definitely prove uh, with the CSAM. So certainly behind the scenes there's a lot of talk about how it's obviously connected the people behind the scenes seem to take that as a fact it's easy to say things behind the scenes you can't say something in court unless you're able to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt and obviously they have not succeeded in getting to that level yet yeah i think i think basically it, it, it wouldn't necessarily mean that but it would certainly mean that the case is not in a place where it could be adjudicated. I mean, that would be definitely fair to say. And then I think that that sort of speaks for itself, obviously. If they're not if they're not charging anyone with it, it's obviously not ready uh, as, as far as a case goes to be taken to trial. Somebody wanted to know if Kagan has turned on his dad, Tony, and implicated him in CSAM and or Delphi, why isn't Tony in jail? More specifically, probably for the CSAM, which ha has... Uh, maybe more evidence than Delphi. But why is Tony maybe not charged yet? Or, or this, yeah, this would be total speculation. But I would say one thing that is very, very clear is that Kagan Klein is a known liar. So if he says, you know, my dad did X, that in and of itself would not be enough. They would need to come up with some sort of independent supporting evidence in order to charge him because any defense attorney that Tony or anyone else Kagan implicates would hire would have a field day saying, yeah, Kagan said this, but you know, look over here, Kagan said. He was a successful rapper. Yeah, Kagan says zig, Kagan says zag, Kagan says up, Kagan says down. Uh, it's, it's going to take more than Kagan Klein's word to do anything in this case. Is that what you're gonna say? Yeah, that, that's what I was gonna say. But in the August 2020 interview with Kagan, police seem to be saying there's two different people talking in the Peru house. So it seems like police do think Tony was at least somewhat involved with the CSAM. So I'm just curious why he's not at least been charged with that, even though all the phones seem to be in Kagan's name. But the police seem to be saying, we think Tony was also chatting. Yeah, it's a, that's a question that we would really like answered ourselves, I would say. I don't know if we know every bit of information about why that is or what, what would be necessary to bring charges against another person in this case. But... It's a good question, but it's one I don't think we can fundamentally 
speak on from an informed place because you know we have some of those questions too somebody asked this but if you don't want to answer it i'll just delete it any idea on the type of evidence the clients might have tried to dispose of in the river or burned no it's not you don't have to delete it um i don't know if we know for sure uh i, I think we, we've heard a lot of rumors um and there's been a lot of speculation obviously this is speculation murder weapon technology uh but we we don't know i guess is a, is a fair way of of saying it what exactly the target was or like what the story was about when it was tossed or what exactly was tossed we don't have that information it's very frustrating because we get things and we're able to verify them but then understandably people have a lot of follow-up questions about like well, okay well can you be a little more specific and we don't always get that immediately or you know ever <laughs> hopefully hopefully i mean that's i mean that would be one great thing about a trial in the delphi murders obviously it'd be a step towards justice for the girls but it would also possibly answer some of these questions about like what exactly happened here or like what what is, what is the narrative what is the story tell us about what the person who did this did and so that that might be something down the road i don't know i mean that's that, i'm not i'm not saying that there's a trial coming i'm just saying that like we're not at a place where we know that somebody had a question you guys did an episode with an interview where you did um with a girl named kayla who had corresponded with kagan online and this person said can you verify if the teenage girl kayla who met Kagan actually saw him close up in person. Because I had listened to that episode and 10 minutes in, she kind of stumbled on her wording and said, quote, I have not met him face to face. But then it seemed like maybe she they were far apart. She said he was sweet in person. So I'm just, I guess this person and I also want some clarification. Do you know if she saw him up close? Uh, basically, most of... I would say about 90% of our interview with Kayla, we put in that episode. Yeah. Uh, we know she had some sort of a online relationship with Kagan Klein. Certainly we, we verified that. And that was actually our first contact with law enforcement in the, in this case is they reached out to us after the Kayla episode and we helped put them in touch with Kayla. Yes. And we don't really know the results of anything after that because we sort of so so because of backed, that we backed off basically because if you have was, a if you if you find a witness that the police have not yet talked to if you talk to them too much or do too much trying to investigate the details of their story you run the risk of contaminating that witness we didn't know that going into it basically we didn't know that they would be interested we kind of took the approach of like let's just email a bunch of people who've been interacting with kick and Klein on facebook and see what they have to say about the whole thing and so uh that, that then that interview went came about and we sort of um you know we we also i i believe we 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 tipped that as well uh, i think we kind of let them know or we, we're in communication pretty quickly afterwards i don't think we tipped them they called they us. called us yeah they called us and then we kind of put them in that was kind of a, a shocking moment we just put out our little podcast and then we get a, a phone call and the caller idea is uh libby and abby tip line <laughs> like oh wow no. yeah and so we kind of backed off pretty hard after that so, so i don't because of that we don't have a lot of the details we know that she's talked to them we know she's talked to them and we just yeah when 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 they when 
that's an example. I mean, that's when I feel I think we can publicly talk about because we were public in the in the first place. But there's other instances where in in the future we might have come across some people where we um, once it became apparent we kind of just you know yeah there there, there've been a other couple of times we came across some witnesses who had stories not dissimilar from Kayla's and instead of putting those on the podcast we put those people in contact with police yeah. pretty quickly yeah we just don't want to okay. Do you know how law enforcement found out about Kagan's Marathon gas station in Delphi search? Because you guys had said that he searched on the day of the murders for Marathon gas station in Delphi. This person wants to know, do you know if how law enforcement found that out? No, we don't. Um, we don't know. It, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, Kevin, but my understanding is that it would have happened, you know, well after 2017. And it would have happened as, you know, sort of revisiting some older leads that had had sort of cropped up earlier so it's like a kind of okay let's look back around basically at the at the client situation which i guess happened when detective Vito took over i i couldn't tell you exactly when or what the impetus was necessarily uh that's a decent guess in my opinion but um i don't we don't have the like exact my impression play by play my impression is there's actually been a couple of times during the course of the investigation with the investigators basically said, we're not really going anywhere. Let's go back to the beginning and make sure we haven't missed anything. Yeah. I think it's probably happened at least a couple of times. Yeah, loop around basically. And and so I don't know exactly what the mechanism of them finding that was or or how that played out necessarily. But it seemed odd that it was not even brought up in Kegan's August 2020 interview. You would think that they would say, because they said, we don't think you were there. And then if he searched Marathon gas station in Delphi, you would think they would have asked that in August 2020. I don't know. That's what somebody just wanted to know. No, it's a fair it's Yeah, a fair it's point. a good point. You think they would have. You know, maybe they meant by there. Maybe they meant at the murder site. But, or maybe they didn't know it then. Or maybe they didn't know it then. Uh, we've talked to police and other cases involving catfishing. And they've told us that the amount of evidence to go through from these devices is massive. Like if you printed it out, it would be almost like truckloads of information. There's like 120 gigs on a phone that's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pages. So it, uh, it takes quite a long time to go through all that. Well, I think in some law enforcement document, it said Detective Vito got the Indiana State Police um, report about Kagan's devices not until I guess June 2020. I don't know if it had not been run before then or what. I don't know. I just found that odd that he I guess started he took over in April 2020, and it said in June he got Kagan's devices reports. So it just seemed odd to me that it was so long after. I don't know. Yeah, and the whole matter of like uh, you know Kagan not handing in one of his phones the one that he was using to talk to Libby there's that too where it's like how did that impact things because he maybe deleted stuff and then they had to go back and try to recreate some of that I don't know I'm speculating here but it the there's a lot (laughs) there's a lot we would love to know about the timeline regarding some of this so people familiar with the case know that there was a witness and apparently his some girl that he was not supposed to be with and they're known as the arguing couple Somebody had a question, it's kind of vague. What's up with a witness at the trails arguing with his quote-unquote girlfriend? Do you guys have anything you want to talk about this? Some people think he's a suspect. He apparently maybe changed his story. He was maybe a witness to 
the killer. Do you guys want to talk about arguing couple or arguing couple guy? Yeah, that uh, there was a theory brought about uh, a while ago and spread on some podcasts and on Reddit, certainly, that that the male in that, I believe, was uh, a, suspect. a suspect. And basically, it was because he he was there. And our concern with that is if you start treating witnesses as suspects in crimes and you're basically wrecking their lives because of this, it might make it less likely for witnesses to come forward in other crimes. And there was actually an episode of our uh, podcast where we interviewed the captain from True Crime Garage because he was one of the people who talked a lot about that theory. He's a great guy. We actually, I love that conversation because I think we came into it very much like, why are you doing this? And he kind of was able to explain his points. We were able to explain our concerns. And then it ended up being, I think, a positive discussion because I think we kind of, everyone left saying, okay, I understand the other person rather than us just kind of being like, you're wrong and, and hit or him being defensive. And so I was, I was proud of that episode and kind of, I mean, it was impressive because I mean, we sent him a pretty hostile email. Which you wrote. Which I wrote naturally. <laughs> Kevin's a teddy bear. I, I I'm was, the good cop. I was, <laughs> I was very stern and mean probably. I mean, I wasn't impolite, but like it was, it was certainly kind of giving an indication that I didn't feel like this was a good thing for them to be putting out. And he immediately got back to us and was like, let's talk about it. And I was really impressed with that because um, I don't know if I would have done that. <laughs> so I gave him a lot of credit. Uh, I felt, you know, I, he really deeply cares about this case. So I have a lot of respect for for the captain. And we may, we disagreed on that point, I would say, but um, I'm glad we've had that conversation. But in general, yeah. I mean, the more we got into the case and the more we understood about like what was going on behind the scenes and what the law enforcement contacts were saying, um, you know, uh, like, and what people were you know, we kind of realize that like the public perception of the case is very different from things going on behind the scenes and what the police are actually focused on. And I think that's borne out by all the Cake and Klein stuff or even the Ron Logan stuff. I mean, you're not we're not hearing stuff about like, oh, we got to check on those witnesses again. I mean, that's just could not be further from the truth. So, you know, yeah, I think there's a lot of lessons in there, but that's my rambling answer. Do you think there's a lack of solid DNA from the killer because it was Tony or Kagan wouldn't have wouldn't it have been solved since they apparently both submitted DNA up to five years ago? All we can do with that is sort of like like it's like a it's like a blank space. So like we can work around it. We don't know what the situation with the DNA is for sure. We've heard some things we can't have been able to confirm them. So we can't report on them. We imagine I mean, this is just speculation, but we imagine if there was a full profile strong DNA evidence that there would be a profile and it would identify either somebody who did it or if they're not in the system then somebody that they could uh, do genetic genealogy with mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that the technology won't catch up with it necessarily like we, we're, there's always new developments and and people you know maybe this sample isn't quite enough but now it is so um i don't think i don't think there's nothing but i also i don't i mean it's certainly we haven't gotten a DNA match and we know that because it hasn't been announced and it hasn't been, no one's been arrested. Something similar to that. Somebody said there was a rumor that a fingerprint evidence was lost. Are you familiar with that? I've heard that rumor. Uh, and the places where I've heard it from have not typically been a source of reliable information. It is the way I'll phrase that. So uh, at this point, 
anything's possible, but I've not heard that from any source that I, I would consider. Yeah, viable. with something like that, it's like we never want to be like, it's definitely not true. Because we don't know. Maybe it is, but like we're not going to, unless we get it from, you know. I don't even know what a, a fingerprint lost even means. Yeah, like does, did you lose the slides or like did somebody did, do it wrong? I don't know. Um, there was a reference in the August 2020 Kagan interview about Anthony Schatz money account going to Libby. Do you know if Anthony Schatz ever sent any money to Libby? Yeah, that's been that we've gotten asked that before recently. And I, I don't I don't know that we do. Right. We've like, been trying to run that down. We've been trying to run that down because it's an interesting reference. And frankly, it's one that sort of flew over our heads because it's like a how many page document and we kind of like you know there were certain things we definitely gleaned from it and then there's other things i feel like we need to go back to and like wait a minute can we pause on this that's one of them uh but we don't have any further information to add beyond what's in the document yeah i found some kegan like cash app or venmo but not for anthony shots so i don't know if it was deleted at some point all right one last viewer question then a few of mine have you heard anything about the trail cameras that were not operating could they have been tampered with I guess there's cameras at the trails and one of them was not working and I don't know. I would, I have not heard about that rumor. Have you? I have not either. Um, as for any, anything that happened, right? So could they be tampered with? The answer is yes, because anything could happen. I think it helps. We are both people who I think we, if we, if we let ourselves go, we kind of might be more on the, you know, oh, maybe this is connected to that. So we try very hard to kind of, I think Kevin came up with this idea and then I've adopted it as well as like the the usual case. It's not Occam's razor, but it's like the most boring thing is probably right. You know, because we don't live in a lifetime movie and we don't live in a fictional story where everything's really neat and dramatic. We live in a, you know, the reality. And frankly, is it more likely that some junky trail cam short circuited or is it more likely that there's a conspiracy and i would say probably the first and if there's evidence of the latter then we're very interested in that obviously but if it's just like a this must be a conspiracy because it didn't work out that you know that's probably that i think that's thinking that isn't necessarily super helpful if that makes sense although it's understandable because our brains are wired to make connections What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. 
Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. All right, just a few of my questions, then we'll wrap it up. Um, Carroll County Sheriff election is November 8th, and some people are hoping a change will affect this case. I listened to you guys interviewed Mike Thomas, who said that um, Tony Leggett was running the investigation and then Mike lost in the primary. And now Tony is running against an independent named Mark Pinkard, who is a Lafayette PD detective. Do you think the only way to change direction in the Delphi case will be if Tony Liggett loses? No, not at all. I'm very bluntly, no. I don't, I think that's a sideshow, frankly. I really do. And I think people trying to make a huge deal about it are, seems like a, it's an interesting thing to do, I guess. <laughs> and it, uh, we're recording this on Tuesday night. And this isn't going to be released until Thursday, by which time the news will probably have broken. Uh, earlier today, Mike Thomas actually filed a lawsuit against Carroll County Sheriff's Department saying that he was discriminated against and bullied and faced workplace harassment because he had some ideas about the Delphi case that were not pursued. And because he ran against uh, Liggett for sheriff. So. That Delphi was not the supreme focus of it, but he did cite it in his lawsuit. Uh, I think that's going to definitely make a lot of people who, you know, like to do conspiracy theories happy. But do we think it's necessarily super relevant for the case? Uh, not necessarily, but we're kind of in the process at, that, at this point of, of, of gathering information around that. But I, I would say that at this point, it's a dramatic idea to have like a local race turn out, you know, be the what the fate of the case turns on. But um, we would just remind people that I I don't really understand how much work Carroll County is, is doing on this case currently. I'm not saying it's nothing, but I'm also I don't I don't know if if, if that's where the solution is going to come from. And earlier, there was actually another lawsuit filed yeah. in which uh, someone from out of state alleged that uh, Tony Ligert uh, violated the Federal Hatch Act and did some other uh, election law violations in the course of that campaign, and that complaint was dismissed. I think a lot of people have a lot of passion about this case, and they really want to get involved and imagine different things can make a difference. But I certainly agree with Anya. I don't think that uh, the results of the election are really going to uh, have too much difference. That first case was so weak that a judge not only tossed it, but actually required that the plaintiffs pay the legal fees for Carroll County, which is a sign that, you know, it was not a very strong case because usually judges do not want to, you know, throw cold water on people. <laughs> like that. Yeah, judges and lawyers and lawyers like plenty of court cases. So that means you it was a pretty much a nuisance suit. And uh, I would say that people, yeah, making a, a big deal about that. I mean, I'll be I'll be curious to see what happens. We're definitely going to be looking into it. But I, I just people people want it to be a conspiracy. That's what I don't understand. People want it to be some evil conspiracy with everybody in Carroll County sitting around rubbing their hands and cackling. And first of all, that's not how the world works. 
Second of all, people can disagree and not be, you know, evil. Uh, the black and white thinking does not help matters. And and third of all, I mean, yeah, I, I think Carroll County's been through the ringer on this one. I mean, people in Delphi and people in the surrounding areas, they've been like, this has been a damaging case, not just for them because they lost these two little girls and they don't feel safe in their community anymore, but because outsiders kind of come in, make a bunch of assumptions about local leadership, local figures, everybody's corrupt, everybody's this or that. And, you know, I, I would just urge people, how would you feel if people, outsiders, were doing that to your community? You'd probably be pretty dismayed by it. And, and you know, let's just all have a little empathy and not necessarily assume the worst about everybody uh, without any hard evidence. You released that um, the Marathon gas station had video that was not able to be retrieved possibly due to law enforcement errors. Other than video taken by Libby, are you aware of any video or photos that law enforcement have of a man dressed like the bridge guy or somebody else resembling a killer? No. Nothing that we've been able to verify. We've heard rumors. I'm sure most of the people either listening or watching this have also heard rumors, but nothing that we've been able to verify. In Kagan's August 2020 police interview, they said that Kagan's Dropbox led to one of the biggest CSAM investigations in Indiana history. Was this true? That's a great question because we've tried to find out. Um, we don't know because police can lie in interviews, as we've said, and as everybody said a number of times. Anecdotally, anecdotally, there seemed to be CSAM cases certainly happening in Indiana. Whether those are connected at all, we we can't really say. I wish we could. When you look at the uh, probable cause affidavits, there's nothing mentioning like, oh yes, this was connected to the Kagan Klein, Anthony Schatz Dropbox. But a lot of some of the probable cause affidavits seem kind of vague in terms of like how it came about. Mm -hmm. That's one of the rabbit holes we've been down is we've been reading a lot of probable cause affidavits in CSAM cases. So we are we are not we're not close to it, but we're not we've not found anything, I guess. And um, the way it's structured, I mean, I'm just thinking aloud here, but I mean, I wonder, I mean, could they have just been referencing to the number of materials he had, like as opposed to like bringing in more people, it's just, you know, the size of what he the cash he had collected. I don't know. Um, but we've we've tried pretty hard to lock that down, but um, have not been successful. In my recent video, I talked about Elliot Schaffner from Kokomo, who was arrested February 10th, the Friday before the murders. He pled guilty and got 15 years plus 10 uh, supervised released uh, release. Sorry, um, he, the case was not on my, my case, so I could not see exactly how many charges he had. But I heard from a fairly reliable source that Kagan was maybe working on a plea deal where he would only serve a very low number of years compared to what most people thought he would based on 30 felonies. So should people be prepared to be disappointed in Kagan's, Kagan's CSAM sentence length? It was it was less than 10 years that I heard that he might be working on a plea, which is disappointing to me at least. Right. It, it would be, I think it would be very disappointing to a lot of people. I, I've heard rumors similar to that. And I, I think that might be part of the reason why uh, Superintendent Doug Carter wanted this to go to trial. I think people out there would be very disappointed if uh, Kagan Klein ever gets out of prison, frankly. 
Yeah, given the what he's accused of and the nature of the crimes against children and just the prolific what he was doing. I mean, I think the idea of him being free and having access to computers should chill anybody to the bone. But I, I would say that um, I don't know what people should be prepared for at this point. I mean, at this point, and things could change on a dime, as as we all know in this case. But pre-trial conference, we're heading to trial. There's no talk of a plea deal. There's no talk of we need more time to continue talking or we just need no more time. No reason why. There's nothing like that. It's just we will see you at the December pre-trial conference and then we'll see you at trial so at this point you know i think and we've said this before one thing that can happen in cases and this is not based on any knowledge it's speculation one thing that can happen in cases with lots of charges is that some of the charges get dropped because they're not quite it's like pruning like you're not like this one doesn't look like it's gonna bud so let's throw it out basically um and that that does not mean the case is falling apart. It just means that the prosecutor is trying to ensure like only the strongest charges get taken. So that something like that, I think could happen at this point at like a future conference or, you know, at the beginning of the trial, but um, we've not heard anything about like a, a plea deal that's currently in the works. In the, uh, any, any plea deal that would be made would be contingent on Kagan Klein telling the truth. And so uh, that's something he seems to have a great deal of problems with. So even if people get initial reports of a plea deal or rumors of a plea deal, keep in mind it could fall apart if it uh, turns out that it's based on things Kagan Klein said that weren't true. Yeah, it's not like, I mean, I think we, this is a silly example, but I think we watched like a Law and Order episode where someone did a plea deal and then lied and they're like, oh, st we're stuck with the plea deal. And it's like, that's not how it works. Like if you just make stuff up, to benefit yourself and you they say all right you know you get the sweetheart deal that you know it then it's the the deal is off the deal is void um and you can't just walk away with it you know just because you got them to the table essentially in the august 2020 interview with kagan he said that law enforcement told him presumably in 2017 that they thought either he or his dad was the murderer in delphi you have said that um you've heard that tony is the focus and other than the reference to the writing style and punctuation and chats, um, the morning of the murders that were referenced and referencing my dad and quite a few of these CSAM chats, I have not really seen anything that shows that Tony would have a reason to be on the Monon High Bridge that day, meet Libby, who is a 13-year-old girl, or be mad enough to kill her. So without revealing specifics, are you aware of any evidence that reveals why law enforcement thinks Tony is the murderer? I don't know if we can speak to that necessarily. I, I can point out some of Tony Klein's history, documented history, uh, involves being very, very violent towards children. And that's as per, which was cited in the um, the transcript. Uh, his, we interviewed his stepchildren and, um, you know, what they said was pretty horrifying. He, he was charged with stalking an 11 year old at one point, um, being violent to her mother in front of her, uh, doing a, <laughs> sex calls to people he didn't know some people he did know uh which is a non-contact sexual offense and then uh the matter is uh, well, uh basically i mean if you go up to peru and, and talk to people who, who knew him and this is we've talked to dozens of people up there at this point i mean he was the town perv who would go around and look in women's windows and you know masturbate and that's that's what he was. That wasn't like a oh, a few people knew about that. That was that's just an open secret. Um, 
so there's a lot of stuff about him that definitely I think should certainly interest people who and as we said there's stuff that we know that we're not able to discuss for one reason or another so there have been a lot of men speculated about online as being the killer are you aware of any law enforcement evidence pointing to anyone other than the clients as being on the bridge or involved well, I would say certainly the March 2017 Ron Logan affidavit pointed to at least interest in in him at that point and and people saying, okay, here are all the here's the case against him. What what are we looking at? And and I, I think our opinion is that that certainly was compelling enough for a probable cause affidavit. I mean, he's been violent towards his exes. You know, they're on his property. He lied that day about you know, elements of his whereabouts. So certainly understandable why law enforcement at that point said, okay, we need to look at this and uh, look at the property. So, I mean, that's and that's why we kind of published that because it was sort of like, where was it in March, 2017? And what, what does that say about where the case is now that nothing happened out of that essentially? So other than that, and other than, you know, the few public comments that have been made about, oh, we cleared this guy or that guy, or, you know, we're not going to take any more questions on this. Um, you know, we could say at this point, the focus is not on Ron Logan. It's on it's on the client angle. So you had said, I think at one point that the police said that um, the clients, I guess, in their February 25th, 2017 police interview said that they were in Las Vegas on February 13th, the day of the murders. It seems odd to me that Tony and Kagan got home like pretty much directly after their which was at February 21st to the 25th Las Vegas trip, they get raided. And it's, did both of them somehow know to tell police we were away on, in Vegas on the 13th? I don't know, it just seems kind of odd to me. It's not more of a question, I guess, just your observations about like them saying they were in Vegas when they were not. We just don't understand why that wasn't like checked or vetted further. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that deception was able to stick you know what i mean like i would think that there'd be ways of it's odd checking that so it strikes us as odd too um there, there was some sloppy police work being we done. also find it very bizarre and we said this again and we'll keep saying it until we get a satisfactory answer we think it's bizarre that the fbi publicly cleared kagan after that raid a day like 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 right then when a simple no comment would have sufficed. Or listen, you don't want to ruin a guy's life just because you're looking in his house. You know, so you could just say something like, we're looking at multiple angles at this point. We're not pointing a finger at any one person. We're just looking for information. Like, boom. Like, just, I mean, the fact that they cleared him publicly uh, is really shocking. We have a lot of questions about what the FBI was doing in February. Yeah. So in Kagan's affidavit, in his, it said in his 2017 interview, he said he was effed. He packed an extra bag for Vegas. And at the time when I was kind of glanced over that, I didn't realize that it seems to meant that he knew his dad may have committed the murders and he was going to leave their Las Vegas hotel, I guess, in the middle of the night to actually live in Las Vegas. But apparently he didn't want to be homeless or something like that. Um, he said, well, he ended up moving to Vegas, I guess, in March, although he said June, but I think it was March. So, like, I, I was going to say, why would police clear them if Kagan told them I thought I was effed? Like, it just it doesn't seem logical to me. It, yeah, it, it it's bizarre. And we don't know exactly what the timeline was about, like, clearing or, you know, what what went into that decision. It's 
it baffles us. A lot of that early stuff, like the timeline and the actions of law enforcement, it's really hard to kind of, and this is why we're kind of not really that concerned with like coming up with a theory of the crime ourselves. We're kind of just trying to like find the puzzle pieces and maybe other people can make some sense of it. Because I don't, I don't feel like we're in a place where we can see what what it is or what exactly happened we can just get little pieces and vet them verify them confirm them publish them and then people can discuss them but we have a hard time putting it together frankly yeah, fair. is that fair to say i i don't want to sound like we don't care or we don't think about this we do it's just that i think we would be trying to make things fit or maybe making puzzle pieces fit where they don't belong and we don't we don't want to do that and we don't want to put out stuff that turns out to be wrong and we'd rather just put out the facts and like let let people kind of hopefully we can all figure it out in the end and somebody will face justice for what they did to abby and libby but at this point we just feel like it's too premature are you aware of how many times both Kagan and Tony have been interviewed by police other than February 25th, 2017 and August 2020 for Kagan? No. No. That's the short answer. We we know they've, they've been interviewed since then. Yes. Was there a second raid on Tony's house in November 2021? We've heard from uh, a, a local reporter who talked to some neighbors of Tony Klein. This was Russ McQuaid of Channel 59. He heard reports of some sort of uh, police action at the home. And apparently that time, uh, Tony Klein's dog, a pit bull named Cujo, was seized. That's all we know. And people are speculating because um, the Ron Logan search warrant where mentioned unknown hairs. And people think it might be they were checking Tony Klein's dog's hair to match the crime scene. Yes, and and certainly we, we've heard that we've too. heard that rumor, and certainly that you know in other cases there's been you know animal hairs matched up that became sort of evidence, but we don't know what the results are or what happened to Cujo or what anything beyond that. At the beginning of this, um, you guys mentioned, or Kevin, you mentioned that this has been an international investigation. I think you're talking about the Yellow and Yubo app. Have you heard anything about this app being important to Delphi? It kind of came out in April of this year, where police, I guess, told a few websites or news outlets that we're also looking for anybody who contacted Kagan on Yellow or Yubo. Can you add anything to why that might be important? Um, we've talked to some folks uh, who've even done videos on on Yubo and, and what it is and, and, you know, sort of found some disturbing elements of the company sort of uh, you know, it's been described, unfortunately, as like Tinder for teens and, and things like that and pointed out like elements of it, you know, could be seen as being uh, possible tools for predators uh, who are looking for, you know, young victims online. And, uh, you know, so the fact that it was brought up specifically by name by law enforcement certainly is concerning, you know, given that it's also received criticism elsewhere for, you know, being a problematic interface. There was a rumor that Doug Carter went to, I guess it's based in France. Yeah. Do you know if that's true or not? And why would he have to go there in person? We, we don't know if that's true. We can't confirm that. Uh, we have heard that rumor. And why would he go there? I guess the thinking would be that you're kind of, you know, you're sending your chief person to negotiate or, you know. But you would certainly think that you could do that just over on the, the phone, phone yeah. or via Zoom. So. I, I kind of tend to 
think it's probably not true because that's a pretty expensive, you know, thing to do just to make a point, I guess, or, you know, be more intimidating. Uh, and I can't imagine, you know, I mean, fr French authorities, I, I imagine there's other cases where there's been cooperation from the United States and France on, you know, crimes that take on an international flavor. So I would imagine that there's probably other avenues that you could take uh, to, you know, ensure that French authorities are cooperating with you. And certainly nothing about the release indicated that like, and we're having trouble with French authorities, they're not helping us do this. So I don't, we don't know anything about that. Seems unlikely, but again, we, we don't know either way. Well, I looked at their website and they do have a policy, what law enforcement needs to do to get these types of documents related to these cases. So I don't know why he would have to go there in person. Yeah, it seems. Doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really make sense. In the last few months, the FBI has removed um, some of the stats related to the guy on the bridge. At one point, they said he could be 18 to 40, up to 220 pounds, reddish brown hair. Could this be used against the prosecution if someone is arrested who does not match that? Kevin, you want to answer that? Uh, technically, the defense can use anything they want. You know, they can say, oh, he doesn't look like the sketch. He doesn't look like the first sketch. Uh, so, yeah, that can be used. I mean, yeah, they can use anything they want and anything that's been put out there, but it doesn't, you know, I think convicting someone based on a sketch in the first place would probably be pretty, not a great idea, you know, like, I mean, like that, that's pretty flimsy. It's not a photograph and the video is blurry. So, I mean. So, yeah, I think if I was the prosecution, I would try to explain, well, here's how we arrived at these stats and in this description and here's why we decided it no longer applied it was like faulty photo analysis or something and i would try to explain it away but i think you would have to explain you'd that. have to explain it but i mean and this is my it doesn't seem like a devastating it's blow. not devastating. i don't think it's devastating but it's certainly something that would need to be accounted for um and it's certainly you know sketches are if you get the guy immediately great and if you don't then everyone's just looking for a, a drawing and that can be pretty tough as we've seen with other crimes final question is for kevin uh-oh wow uh-oh yeah Thanks, <laughs> you're off the hook i'm off the hook how many grateful dead concerts have you been to people think kevin is a big deadhead what really <laughs> oh my god if people knew what i've never been to a single grateful dead concert i'll uh admit my musical tastes go in a little bit different direction. Tell them. I like Broadway show tunes. I like Frank Sinatra. He's, he's the biggest Sinatra fan. Uh, we do like some more contemporary music. Just over the weekend, we went to a Jason Isbell concert. Yeah, that was fun. Um, at the Ryman yeah, in uh, Nashville. That was nice. Uh, but, was that a good trip? Yeah, it was. It was pretty cool. We went to some murder sites too. I mean, that's that's that was more like a work aspect of the trip, but um, but yeah. Is it because he has like longish hair? They think he smokes pot. <laughs> no, I mean, I, God, if people met him, they'd be like, "That would." <laughs> I okay, so I I I like long hair, so like that's my fault. If people want to be mad, <laughs> his wife made him do it. Look like a hippie, I guess. I'll, I'll tell. Is this? Yeah, is no, this... just as long you're not a minute too. Wrong, no, right? no. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm doing better now, but for an extended period of my life, I suffered from a condition 
that left me in chronic pain. And so after marijuana, medicinal marijuana was legalized in Canada, a lot of people said, you should try that. And so I never had marijuana in my life. Uh, and so I and uh, a friend went to Canada and I got some of this medicinal marijuana and I took some and it had no result whatsoever. Now, you know, didn't affect my pain, didn't make me high. So I thought, well, I must be doing, not taking enough. And so I, I, I bought it in capsule form, pretty strong capsules. And so I ended up taking like a whole handful of them and it didn't make me high, didn't help my pain. And I said, maybe I got a bad batch and I gave one to just one capsule to the friend I was with and they got very, very <laughs> high immediately. So there's something about my body chemistry that won't let me get high apparently. Yeah, and he also, does, he's never drank like at all. Like you hate the taste of alcohol. I hate the taste of alcohol. So, so do I. Yeah. So how is your pain today? Is it better? And I'm sure people who suffer also would want to know what you did that maybe made it go away. I have, uh, it's called mitochondrial disease, which is uh, the mitochondria is basically the kind of the engine of the body that makes energy for the body. And so when you have uh, this disease, it's like a doctor said, it's like you have a big Cadillac and the motor is from a golf cart. So I was always tired. I was always headachy. I'd walk across a room and get uh, out of breath. And lots of muscle pain. Lots and lots of muscle pain. Uh, I still have some migraines occasionally, but the main thing that helped was uh, some medicine called uh, Amavig that really helped with my migraines and uh, helped for some reason helped with my energy. Yeah, for like we, like it's one of those things where it's like we're not able like it's we're not able to account for necessarily the improvement that he's shown, but it's it's like we don't care. It's just like good. <laughs> it's taking care the, of a lot of for that. that. The only way I could get through a day there was I was uh, the doctors prescribed basically pep pills that. Uh, college students would take to stay up all night or truck drivers would take and it would just give me enough energy to get through a day yeah it was also killing your heart yeah it was damaging my heart yeah so yeah it, it's a miracle drug uh in his case but i mean i, I know other people have had chronic pain in other from other situations and you know it's not it's not one size fits all but i'm thank god for whoever invented it <laughs> Is that more from my, my sister has had bad migraines for 30 years and she hasn't been able to figure it out. Is that Ambovig for migraines or is that just one of the things it's good for? Ambovig, it's, pri yeah. it's primarily for uh, migraines. And if she hasn't tried it, I really recommend it. It's a monthly injection. I have a loved one who also has very frequent migraines and she tried it and it did not work for her. Okay. So it's not perfect for everybody but uh the doctor i saw said it's life-changing yeah. for the people it helps and it's only been life-changing he's so, he gets he has a lot of migraine triggers so he still gets a lot of migraines but a lot of the other underlining symptoms of the mitochondrial disease have been really helped by this all right well i wasn't sure what we were going to talk about and it's almost two hours later so oh, wow <laughs> and now you know all about kevin's uh, secret as well. a non-pothead <laughs> We want to thank Tom for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, we certainly recommend that you check out his channel, not only for his crime videos, but for his uh, comedy videos as well. 
he'll be putting up a video version of the episode you just listened to. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murder sheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.